as Nicholas said, yeah, we don't typically have conferences that go past five o'clock, no less six. Um, but I know what it's like to stand in between um, cocktails. So we're gonna try to get you out um, as early as you'd like, maybe 6.20 or so, so we don't need to. All right, as long as people are laughing, I'm gonna keep going. So. Yeah. No, I would say that. I mean, all the panels have been great. Hopefully, this is the one you truly were waiting for. Uh, not because I'm moderating, of course, uh, but because we have a fantastic panel. Owners, look, for the owners in the audience uh, and for everyone else, an owner's panel special. And why is it special? These are actually the men and women that can move the market. Uh, their decisions as to when to buy, when to sell, when to charter, when not to charter, are actually decisions that, you know, show up in terms of, you know, what people pay or won't pay for assets. So, I think it's worthwhile, you know, putting the phones away and, you know, listening carefully to what these men and women have to say. So, let me quickly introduce this star panel. Um, all the way to the left is my dear friend, uh, Paulus. Hagiano, um, who I had the distinct pleasure of taking St. Falkers public when I was at Merrill Lynch and is a dear friend and if um, everyone complains about share price, Paulus does as well, but he's one of the few companies that actually has a share price above net asset value and runs an unbelievably efficient company. Um, also down at the end is Petros Papas, another good friend who we've done business with through the years who I've been honored to work with. And Petros, too, has had you know, an incredibly long and successful um, participation in the industry. We've been lucky to bring him as a public company as well so that he gets to share his genius with, uh, with the public out there. And he also is running an amazingly efficient company. Um, we have Nicole, who I've not met before this conference, but I've spent some time with her, and uh, she is the CEO or president of Transmed and um, has an amazing set of assets, and we're really curious to get your perspective on life. Uh, Aristides has been the CEO and chairman of EuroSeas for many years, um, and has really navigated through very challenging markets and uh, participates in the dry bulk and container space. Uh, we have um, Andreas, who I, when I come to Cyprus, I always manage to see and love uh, talking shop with him. And his view is particularly interesting, thank you, because he participates not only in dry bulk, but also some other segments. So we can talk uh, beyond dry bulk. And then, of course, our captain needs no introduction other than to say how lucky we are to have him here. <laughs> you want that on video? <laughs> you, you've, you've had a lifetime of, of hearing people say wonderful things about you, all well deserved. So with that, we'll get into the fun of it. Um, we're gonna try to do this a little differently. If you can see, this is like on the back of a uh, few pieces of paper. So we deliberately have kept this a bit unrehearsed. Uh, none of the questions have been shared. Um, it will be good to get their unscripted uh, comments. Hopefully they uh, will say some not only consensus views, but hopefully things that are non-consensus views, because those are always the most interesting. Maybe they'll even make a little bit of news today. That would be fun. And um, with that, let's, let's get into it. So, um, and one other promise, uh, we're not talking more about regulations. Um, I've heard a lot and nothing is clear, so uh, even these gentlemen probably can't clear it up anymore. So let's start with the dry bulk market. I'm going to first turn to Petros and anyone on the panel that is participating in the dry bulk market, I want to chime in. But the one thing we continuously hear is the dry bulk market is a sort of no-miss market in 2018-19. If you look at the analysts, you talk to most of the CEOs, everyone, I hear the same basic story, some D 
deviation up of supply is the order book is seven or eight percent, very low. Net supply this year is you know two percent ish, maybe it's lower. Uh, demand has to be four or five percent, hence you know utilization is going to be better, rates are going to be better. That all sounds fantastic. So Petros, feel free to sort of chime in about all those good things, but. I also want to know from all the panelists, what could we be missing? What could be the fly in the ointment in the dry bulk market? Thank you, Mark. To begin with, I'm not only bullish for uh, 2018 and 19. I'm bullish for beyond that. Um, and the reason is, I'm going to say good things first. The reason is that um, 18 and 19, seem to have a, a good uh, demand-supply balance, as you said, almost as you said, because actually supply is not 8%, it's 12%, and it's hidden, and, um, and scrapping is not going to be very strong this year, maybe next year, but not this year, so we may even see an increase in supply of 3%. But uh, in any case, uh, it seems that uh, demand supply balanced well for 18 and 19. And then we have in 2020 the, the environmental regulations effect. First, that of the sulfur, of the 0.5% limitation in sulfur, which will have two effects. It will uh, oblige vessels to slow down their speed because the economic speed will be, uh, will be uh, lower with more expensive bunkers, if we have to use uh, distillates instead of fuel oil, and we stop using fuel oil, uh, the price of fuel oil will go down, I don't know, a couple of hundred dollars probably. The price of diesel oil will probably go up. So you see a big difference. It's going to be expensive, and therefore you have to go slower. And that will have a positive effect on supply. So that's a good thing. Uh, also, the ballast water treatment plant that we all probably conveniently pushed back as much as we could. 2020 and 21 are going to be the reckoning years, and we'll have to install them. So if you have an older vessel, even 17 or 18 years old, and you have to do past dry dock and install the, um, the, the ballast water treatment plant, and at the same time, you have to, to have, the vessel has to be a good consumer because, because if it's a, it's a thirsty vessel, then it's going to be more expensive to, to trade. Some of those vessels will probably go for scrapping. So I think that the environmental regulations that are coming up in 2020 are going to be uh, a bonus for shipping that we didn't expect. Because I have no question in my mind that going forward, we ship owners will once again shoot ourselves on the foot and we will over-order. Over it's happening now. It's happening as we speak. And it's not just the ship owners. You see, I mean, Vale putting in, um, in cooperation with the Chinese, they're having all these VLOCs coming in. It's going to be, it's going to be uh, difficult as far as supply is concerned going forward. Perhaps we will uh, save the day by the environmental regulation, slow down of speeds, and uh, the fact that uh, vessels will have to turn into distillates, this is going to create off-hires, others are going to install uh, scrappers, they will take longer off-hires. So my view is that we'll have two good years, and we'll probably have a couple of other good years going forward, unless we really over-order, in which case uh, it's anybody's guess. Now. What could go wrong in between? Let's let's ask Nicole that. Sorry, uh, Nicole. Nicole, yes, thank you. You go for the bad news. Petros, Petros, your heart wasn't in it, so on the bad part. <laughs> well, you left the difficult part for me because I actually don't disagree with you. Um, 
perhaps the only part that I would uh, disagree a little bit is I'm not as optimistic um, on the effect of the new regulations in terms of in terms of uh, scrapping because the world fleet is still very very young. So taking the decision to scrap a ten-year-old is not an easy decision to make, and you have to see. Um, low, low freight rates, and have no optimism to, to reach that point. Um, I think I, I totally agree that we're seeing um, uh, good fundamentals. We have very good reason to be optimistic in the next couple of years. Minor um, hiccups, uh, governmental interventions, or geopolitics, or whatnot, could put a little bit of a damp in, but not enough. I think uh, the biggest risk, as uh, Mr. Papa said, is, uh, is the oversupply, which if we combine with the overregulation of the banking industry and the fact that we're now seeing um, a lot more um, newcomers and a lot more alternative financing than we're used to, that basically means um, financing of possibly the wrong deals or maybe just too many of the right deals. Um, when you take out the banks that actually understand the shipping industry, and you're looking at um, funds or, or uh, Chinese sale and leaseback deals. These are financial deals that they're all great um, for some, but they're not the cure. Paulus, um, anything different, or maybe is there is it all positive on the demand side? We didn't really get too deep into that, but what's your point of view on coal and iron ore? trends over the next little bit, and what are you thinking for the next couple of years? Yes, uh, I think it looks positive for the next two years, uh, simply on strong demand. Actually, 2017, we were surprised on the, on the strength of the market. Uh, the fact that uh, we reached the break-even levels in uh, the third quarter, we, our, our uh, programming and our uh, charting was uh, to reach this level in the middle of 2018. So the market outperformed in 2017 and uh, despite the order book uh, and the deliveries of 2017, we had very strong demand which managed to, to increase freight rates. Uh, now, we, we all see that demand will out, outperform supply for 18 and 19. Of course, uh, as Petro was saying, uh, we see increase in ordering already. And uh, when, we, generally in shipping, my experience the last 30 years, when we were all agreeing what the market will do, the market was doing something else. So from that point of view, we are taking a cautionary approach. We are not placing any new building orders. We can do, we can place, and I hear people and uh, it's a little bit disappointing to hear people ordering ships to make a 10% on a resale, to, to resell it at a 10% profit in two years' time or three years' time. This is not the reason to order ships. I always believe in my life to order ships out of profits, not out of losses. The last three years we had terrible losses and we cannot start ordering ships out of those losses. So we will refrain from that uh, game. Aracis, do you want to talk? To, should we uh, rotate a little bit to the container side? You can, if you have one or two sentences on dry bulk, jump in, but you're our container representative today, so we definitely want to hear about that market. Okay, I'll tell you about containers in a second. I want to say two things uh, on the dry bulk side. The demand is an unknown and uh, it can go wrong. This is one thing that can go wrong if China stops importing either northern coal, uh, especially coal where, where they have their own capacity. I don't think it will happen, but it's always a danger. Back in 2016, we saw China import uh, less coal than in 2015, I think maybe by about 15%. This was reversed totally in 2017 when they imported 15% more than the previous year. So China is, is really uh, what will uh, cause demand or can cause demand to go sour, but it can also be very positive. So apart from all these fundamental things where there's so many things intertangled, there is one thing that shows us that 
we are not at a bad stage in the market today. Ship prices are still low, and historically they are low. And, uh, you know, ideally, as we all learn, if you can buy low and sell high, you're fine, you make a great profit. So you should be buying low when you can't even see the logic of it. Right now, we're still below average, so I think, you know, it's, it's reasonable to expect that we will see uh, asset prices improve and, of course, this will happen because charter rates will also improve to above average. So that was my comments on, on, on dry bulk. Uh, the container market, I think it is at the, at the level which is uh, following the dry bulk market but with a year's lag. In dry bulk's worst year, has been 2016, that was the worst year for the last, uh, I don't know, 35 years, since the 1980s. Uh, containers' worst year was, was uh, 2017, the beginning of 2017. We already see that market having turned. That market depends a lot, or totally, I would say, on global GDP growth. And this has been stronger than expected, and this has really resulted in more uh, containers being carried around the world. So, with the projections that we currently see on global GDP growth for the next couple of years, if they materialize, I am confident that we will have a strong demand growth. Last year it was 5%, 5.4%. Uh, we expect similar rates of growth in 2018 and 2019. 2018, we have already had a lot of deliveries. The fleet has increased by 1.2% already, and we expect it to increase by another 3 or 4%. So we expect a balanced demand supply in 2018, but there is a positive momentum. And 2019, at this stage, seems extremely good. The balance sheet, the fundamentals seem extremely good between supply and demand. So we are quite confident that the container market is going to follow the dry bulk market with the years lag and continue improving. And without wanting to go into uh, the cascade issues and the big versus the small ships, we all know that obviously the one uh, size affects the other size. They are, or the markets at the end of the day, they move quite much in parallel. However, there is so many big ships being built and no small ships being built that I feel a little bit more positive for the smaller container ships. And this is the area where we are in, so I had to say that. <laughs> Thank you. All right, now uh, we're going to put Captain Chakos to work as well as uh, Andreas. Um, we went from a lot of optimism on dry bulk to so-so maybe on containers, although you're optimistic to tankers, so crude, product. Andreas, I know you are in a bunch of sectors, but we're, we're asking the two of you to be our tanker representatives today. <laughs> and nice of you to defer, nice touch. I'm not that <laughs> Even a better touch. On the tankers, we, we have seen all what the uh, Petros have uh, described before. We have seen for many years, many, 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 many years. And the logic that you are applying, and you are thinking, we have applied the same logic for tankers. We are still waiting to see the improvement. <laughs> wow. you, should, you should not lose hope, Capabalio. You see, I told you this would be fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm an optimistic, by, you can see. There's <laughs> yeah. a lot of glasses uh, half full here. Uh, but uh, my next yes. 
Andreas, do you want to pick it up? Yes. Um, I would try and. And you can disagree. Uh, you can disagree with your peers too. So that's that's also appreciated. No, no, I don't disagree with anything. No, <laughs> I agree with almost everything was said. I would add. I would add that shipping is fed by inflation. Now we have ten long years of zero interest rates. So soon we're going to be coming into an era of inflation. And that's very, very good news. I think we open a bit of price by the improvement of the freights due to the inflationary pressure, which makes stocking very attractive. So on the top of all this talk of uh, increased coal and increased demand and all that, there is an element of everything becoming more expensive through inflation. So the need of stocking, and that can surprise us all how strong the market can get. We saw that in the 80s, the early, late 70s and the late 80s. On the um, scrapping, um, I think we're going to see scrapping continue for two reasons. One reason is because the, the rates, the scrapping rates are very high compared to the last past few years. And the second reason is because we are now coming to the end of these long charters for the conversions, if you remember, of the 19, of the 2007-2008, the VLCC has been converted into, into uh, the old, very large archives. And that all the charters are coming to the end, plus the technical problems these ships develop, I think we're going to see a bit of especially on the case. Continue. On the container, um, there is one more positive thing, which is the cost of, of building the containers is so high. So for the medium-sized ships, the smaller the medium-sized ships, it doesn't make sense. The current rates don't make sense to go on other ships. So first we're going to have to see a steep improve of rates before we see our greediness coming in and <laughs> putting orders like uh, allowing uh, uh, feasibility study to build the container. So all these are positive news. What is the negative news? The negative news is the negative, negative uh, prospects is China. China. There is a big talk about, not all of us, about the increasing debt, the bank debt to, to the business there. And we know we've been hearing about recession in China for 20 years, <laughs> and it never, it never materializes. But sometimes we may be surprised by China. Um, what was the other thing? Ah, the order, yes, yes, and we should never underestimate our greediness. Right? <laughs> All right, well, that brings us to the, to, the, to the next topic, because greed has always been a powerful motivator. Um, I'm going to start with Petros, my favorite person on the panel. But we're only, we, you're, you're limited to one minute per person here. So, as we all notice, everyone is pretty optimistic on dry ball. So the question is, and I think um, someone on the panel identified that assets are way below typical value. So we're sort of bottom of the cycle prices. So the question is, why, why, are, why aren't more people pushing up prices in the S&P market right now? Why are asset values so low? And I'll make this a multiple choice question if you want to limit the time. One, you don't really have the confidence that in the market that has been expressed. Two, you're focused on debt pay down. Three, capital is hard to raise or too expensive. Four, none of the above. Or five, all of the above. It's like an SAT test. 
Yeah, I did well on hesitations. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what you asked. You asked why, why are vessel prices are low. Why are you not participating in the S&P market to a large degree? <laughs> Asset values are so low, and you're so positive on the market. You well, and everyone else. First of all, we've lost so much money over those last few years, so there's not as much uh, liquidity as there was before. That's one thing. And uh, second, there aren't enough loans as well. Okay. I think these are the main two reasons why prices are Perhaps, I mean, I don't think any of those two were in your list. I had price. capital hard to raise or too expensive. So okay. three, right. three would, yeah. would have been a yeah. correct answer. In your yeah, I, I think these are the two uh, main reasons. Okay. 30 seconds. Excellent. Paulus? Yeah. Three reasons, the big losses the last two, three years. Secondly, the already, we are already invested, all of us, 40, 50, 60 ships in each company, it's more than, uh, more than enough if there is a turnaround of the market. And uh, third, I think uh, the priority is the first money that will be made in the next two years will be used for deleveraging. If you deleverage in a good market, you can make a lot of money even in the bad market. So this should be, in our mind at least, a priority. Nicole? Well, from our facts, uh, Mark, uh, for sure all of the reasons that the gentleman had mentioned are valid for some companies. Uh, we have actually been quite active over the past 12 months, picking uh, up uh, a few vessels here and there. Congratulations. So, so far, so good. <laughs> so, yes, I suppose all of those are valid reasons, but there are many reasons why we would choose to buy or not to buy at any given point in time. Okay. We can go right down the line here. Yes, I, I think that uh, prices are still low and one would invest because of all the reasons that we said, uh, that the other said we are not investing. Uh, one other reason is that the people that invested in the very high prices, when the prices were so high, were really a lot of new money coming in, either from uh, parties that saw that saw the great party that we had had between 2005 and 2008 and said, okay, let's now buy, it's dipped uh, 50%, it's a great opportunity. But this was new money, or I have to say money raised in the capital markets again, which was new money practically. So the new money doesn't like the business at all right now and they're not putting money in. They, so I think that is one of the reasons this correct answer is three, as you said. Okay. Lack of capital. Okay. All right. Time's up. <laughs> okay, thanks. Just the time. What I'm going to say is that where are the good ships? <laughs> we don't see them. Oh. There are very few quality ships on the So market. are the price levels artificial? Yeah. Pa I Paulus bought a, a 2010 ship for a good price recently on auction. <laughs> One off. That's One off, okay. Well, that's few weeks ago, yes. <laughs> but especially on the container, I was looking the other day, and there was no container of the market, only four to 10,000, uh, no good values. No, 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 no good, no good. Unless you go on very old. Now, prices are there, and I don't understand why the brokers are putting the prices so low when there are no ships. What? It's a ploy of the banks. The same? <laughs> yeah, very old tankers of the market. Well, yeah, prices stick. Sorry, come off. But not on the quality. Captain? The truth. Are you a buyer? Oh, no. <laughs> the truth why we are not buying is that. They see the values are, the ships are very, very cheap. So we ourselves doubt. And what we're doing here, telling you all this good news, is to get <coughs> courage and, from you. <laughs> when the prices of these ships from $17 million will go up to 37, 40 million, then we will compete who will buy the 
first. And, and I say this with all due respect to the, to the good judgment that we have and we and the good name that we have as buyers and everything. But I am the older here, therefore I have done but more probably most of the transactions. Well, I have done so many mistakes. I can I can I only talk for myself. <laughs> of course, of course, we have done uh, well at the end because six out of the ten times we were right, but four out of ten times we were wrong, and we were heavy, we were heavily wrong, not slightly wrong, because if when you compete on seven on prices of say sixty and seventy million dollars. 10% is $6 million. So uh, I, I'm just going to, uh, can I, if you want. You, you have an unlimited time. <laughs> Moderator's uh, discretion here. I, I, really, I really don't know much more what uh, what other than uh, I like that uh, double L. Decision-makers uh, in two minutes or less are you glad you went public why or why not and for those that are private and you guys are big private companies so you have the ability would you like to be public we'll go left to right Petros I won't start with you you can hear Paulus's answer first I like uh, both uh, both uh, sides both sides. The public company makes you a better company. It makes you more organized, and you are ahead of the game. You you, you go down, and we see we see cash flows and results, and we see projections in three and five years forward, and we take the right steps before something hits us. When we were private, we didn't care. We say, okay, it's a profit losses. Uh, we will manage somehow, 
we pay more money, we get uh, the loss, we hide it somewhere and uh, nobody cares. <laughs> so, I'm glad you stopped hiding. Right now, right now, because on the public side, we couldn't expand uh, in 2016 and 2017 because we had to sort out uh, uh, the leverage and be correct. I thought uh, when I was planning the company with 50% uh, finance that it was a pretty safe uh, leverage policy. When the market dropped to 35-year lows, we reached 80%. And that was not acceptable to the banks, and we had to sit down and use uh, part of our liquidity, the company's liquidity, to, to support uh, our loans. So we did that, and uh, we, we, we planned, to be honest with you, for a bad market for another three years in 2016. Thank God it didn't happen, but that was the plan. So as, as a private company, we would have never go down into such detail to plan three years ahead to face the bad market. Uh, we would uh, be hopeful and uh, optimistic that things will change. Now, on the private side, we invested uh, in 16 and 17, uh, buying ships, both in Cyprus and uh, in the Monaco office, together with my brother, we have a new company there. Uh, we didn't want to take any debt on those uh, vessels, and we, prepared, we, we believe we, we will make a good return there because it was investing the right time. So both sides of the business is attractive, but for those of us that have gone public, you see that you become a more organized company, and this, there are a lot of advantages. I'm doing finance in the public company at below 200, as we talk, uh, which below 200 uh, basis points which uh, is, uh, is, is what is keeping our cost down and what, uh, what reduces our break-even level. You know, if we didn't have all these uh, projections, all this uh, visibility, and the bankers could see the performance of this company over the last 10 years. 2017, we were the best uh, stock market performer of all shipping companies. Why? Because we took, took the right actions in 2016. As a private owner, I would never care to do these things. So, Everything has a positive and a negative. There is a cost element, we know this, it's a million or two a year to run uh, the audited uh, accounts, to have the experts, to have the Salbanis Oxley or be ahead of the game. But also it gives you other, other benefits, other benefits that you don't have as a private owner. So it's not something for, 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 for owners. Uh, I'm be stopping you there only because I want to hear Nicole and everybody else, and the time is slipping away. But, Paulus, I'm glad to hear that. I was feeling guilty that I may have taken you public and you regretted it. <laughs> well, Mark Paulus is uh, obviously very right. There's pros and cons to both sides of, of uh, the uh, coin. Um, we, we are private and we plan to uh, stay private, at least in the near future. Um, in my view, the biggest advantage to that is the, uh, the ability to uh, adapt to make swift decisions no matter what the change, um, what the circumstances. Um, you don't have to wait for your board of directors or your shareholders meetings or your whatnots. And this is, uh, this I think is a big advantage in difficult times especially. Thank you. <laughs> Petros, share your wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> for 35 years, or 30 or 35 years, I was buying cheap and selling expensive. Now, what is cheap and expensive is relative, right? And then we went public. If we were, if we continued on the private side, we would have done much better because we would have sold out in 2014. On the public, in the public domain, you actually don't sell out. I, I, I dared suggest at some point in 2014, and people and analysts said, what are you doing? Everybody is thinking that uh, 2015 is going to be $35,000 for the Capes, and I don't know how many for the Panamax, etc. If you sell now, your share price is going to go down. And it was the wrong thing to do, obviously. And, and we suffered for three years. And of course, at that point comes in the benefits of the public company, because we managed to get hundreds of millions from the public side. 
right, which we wouldn't have been able to do uh, privately. But privately, we would have sold earlier. So yes, good and bad, but uh, had, had we sold, then we wouldn't need the money. So I think that uh, I mean, there's lots of pros and cons, right? I'm not going to go. I mean, some of them were already, already mentioned by Polis and Nicole. Um, I, I think that um, besides the organization that we're obliged to go through and the governance and all that stuff, which is good for the public company, I think we should be dealing with our public companies as if they're private city companies and not pay attention to what analysts say, next year it's going to be $100,000, guys don't sell now. Yeah, but if I sell now, I triple my, my, my profit. So I might as well sell now and let the company, uh, let the market go to $100,000. I think we should do, we should act as private ship owners most of the time because this is a business which has ups and downs. It fluctuates, it never stays up, it goes down as well. We should take advantage of good prices and uh, take the good things from the public uh, mar markets, but also take our decisions as private supporters. Thank you. Yes, I think Petros uh, said it very right. The, the biggest and perhaps the only significant disadvantage of being public is that you cannot sell when you probably should sell. Because the market, the way the capital markets are made, is not going to reward you for doing that. I remember back in 2007, we had raised $100 million. And after a third follow-on within that year, and we had stopped investing. And we were criticized by the whole market that we have become a lazy company. We were saying we can't find investments to do, but we were criticized, and that criticism uh, lasted for, for a long time till the market collapsed and suddenly the analysts at least were saying, oh, you were smart not to do what uh, we did. What we did then helped us not to dilute ourselves as much as other companies that actually, uh, actually uh, you know, invested all the money and when the crisis came needed money. We didn't need money, but we could not grow at the right time. We didn't have the capital. so. We were stuck for the last seven years because of our policy of not, you know, diluting existing shareholders, raising extra money as most of the public companies did. It's a different game and we have to realize that. I doubt that we can run a public company as a private, uh, as a private company. I really doubt the dynamics are there. So. Uh, to an extent, of course, you have to, but it's very difficult, and I don't see it can be done. It's like a hedge fund uh, that you say it's uh, more short than long. That doesn't happen. So I think this is the biggest disadvantage uh, of the capital markets, because it does not allow you to sell when you have to sell, but the advantages are huge, are humongous, and we, I really have enjoyed my ride over the last uh, 12 years that uh, we have been public. We were a very small company of five ships when we started off in 2007 uh, and became public. Now we run 20 vessels. Uh, we have paid significant dividends to our shareholders in the good times. We have been suffering and become a much, much smaller company uh, during the last uh, years. but. We, we, we believe that things will turn and that the opportunities that we will get from being public in raising funds, in getting cheap finance, in finding partners to, to partner with, all that is there and it will not be there for a five-ship uh, private company. Andreas? Yeah, I, have very, I have no experience at all as a public company. From uh, the I think it's very good because actually one guy I know that was public and went back private. <laughs> so it must be something good in there. <laughs> but from, I, I also think from the negative point of sight that it's distinct, different way of doing business. And I don't think it's much at all my way of doing business, which is taking advantage of the cycle. So I don't think that fits with the public company. 
And I don't think I want to share that. <laughs> Honesty is so refreshing. Well, Captain, you, uh, you've been public for a while. You also have some assets in private ownership. You've seen your son really thrive as a public company CEO, which must give you joy. What's your perspective? We've been, you know, we've been public by, by chance. <laughs> because my, my sons, uh, he thesis was public companies. So, so uh, that is how we became public. And when it, the first time the company was uh, established in Oslo, four tankers to transfer four tankers of the company of the family to the public and then we of course invested a uh, couple of dozens of millions of dollars on top and we became public. Ten years later we went to New York. Nikos uh, uh, enjoyed doing this uh, which uh, <clears throat> I consider that it was this uh, uh, one way of starting something different and uh, fresh instead of following the steps of his father and not <clears throat> putting something new and more innovative <clears throat> together. And I'm very proud for the job he and <clears throat> he's so successful that he made us all follow and support him to the extent that uh, the mother company, that is the family company, has now a number of uh, 25 ships and the, uh, the, yes, the, <laughs> the brands of the public company has 65 cities. So uh, for me, for me, it's a good experience, a good learning experience. And I think that um, once you are public, I, I cannot encourage or discourage anybody, but once you are public, like we happen to be, you can learn a lot of things and you can transfer a lot of things to the public company from your experience as independent. And I agree that if we could impose in the family office, in the family company, the reporting and the accounting and the discipline and the structure of the public company, it's a plus. And if we could uh, inspire the public company, the feeling of the family company, that is this is one company, it's a private company, and should be, no matter how many shareholders are, there is the same company. And the best of both worlds should be applied. I think you can have the best the best results. And at the end, I, I, I put the judgment that the future will be more, will be more, encouraging more, encouraging especially for the young generations, uh, to be public will be a good, this is my experience. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, George, do you want to have the last word? I, do you have yes. a uh, point of view on that as well? And then maybe there's time for a question or something? When I've heard so far, I think this is one underlying factor which I think came out in everybody's um, view. 
um, this childish enthusiasm. Because at the end of the day, it's all very well as you mentioned about how you run the public companies, but I got the feeling when every single one who spoke here, they, they went by their hunch, their gut feeling. Um, I think earlier on today, for those who weren't here, I, I mentioned a term which um, I don't know whether it goes down to being confrontational, just being realistically honest. I use the term organized chaos. And I still say that, and I think my, my, my friends here and colleagues will actually share that view, because at the end of the day, if you have an inconsistent market, you've got volatility, you've got the ups and downs which are unpredictable, how on earth can you be logical in trying to make an assessment on a logical market? I'm sure each one of us here today, especially my dear friend Banayoti, who's, I think I've never known anybody who's got such a challenging enthusiasm. I think at the end of the day, one actually does think, we, the real decision maker, I think you get your gut feeling. You get up in the morning, you say, I think that is right. And in saying so, I'd like to convey a message to those in the, in the room who are the younger generation. And again, I'm going to be being correct. Don't listen to what you read in books. Don't listen to logic. Don't listen to theory. You go by theory. Be absorbent, be influenced by it. But go by your gut feeling. And don't deceive yourself that making money or doing anything in shipping, you can't do it without taking risks. And when you're taking a risk, if you go in the right direction, you'll, you'll be congratulated. If you go in the wrong direction, you'll be criticized. That's the life of shipping. Unpredictable, and of course, last but not least, terrifically, amazingly romantic, which is perhaps one of the most beautiful ingredients of this business. We are romantic. We're literally, we don't live life, we flirt with life. Thank you. George, that was quite poetic, uh, inspiring. Hopefully I can be a ship owner one day. <laughs> Mark, it's because we're romantic that we're doing it on Valentine's Day. Uh, there you go. That's us. We're all together. Well, on that note, it's probably time to start drinking, right? Uh, I'd like to obviously thank this all-star panel. I mean, um, this discussion, I, I can only imagine uh, the audience enjoyed quite a bit. And again, that has nothing to do with the moderator, everything to do with a fantastic group of men and women, thankfully, as a uh, representative, and um, some great insights. And we appreciate the generosity of um, not just what you shared with us, but you know the fact that what, what you expressed largely came from your heart. I'm sure everyone enjoyed it.